Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. The podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. 
I've got a wonderful little story from one of our favorite authors here on Sleepy, Ellen Montgomery. It's a continuation of the Anne of Green Gables series. I'm excited to read it to you tonight. Before we get to the bedtime story, uh, I just want to thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a site where you can go and pledge a couple bucks to listen to an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's wonderful patrons, Nancy Smith, Tala Wright, Amanda Provost, Evie George, and Lauren Harms. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. It really, truly means a lot. Thank you. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon, which is a site where you can go and directly support creators of the work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, um, maybe you listen to it every night, then consider going and uh, pledging even a dollar. It goes a really long way. And like I said, at $2, you get a totally ad-free version of the show, and then at $5 a month, you get access to the special Patreon poetry fee with over 50 extra poetry readings that are uh, separate from the regular podcast fee, which I think you'll really like. Regardless of how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight, we're going to be reading some more Elon Montgomery. Well, we've read a handful of times in this show. Uh, Ellen Montgomery, of course, wrote Anne of Green Gables, which is probably um, her most famous work, um, but the story has continued. I read uh, Anne of Avonlea on the show, and tonight we're going to be reading Rainbow Valley, which was published in 1919, just after World War I. Um, and Rainbow Valley is... Is technically the fifth book in the Anne of Green Gables series, and um, it's the uh, seventh chronologically. Yeah, in this story, Anne, little Anne, is now 41 years old, and uh, she's the mother of six children. And Rainbow Valley is her story as a mother, um, and the beginning is nice and rhythmic and. Um, Kind of snoozy, been great to fall asleep to. So, without further ado, continuation of Anne of Green Gables, we'll be reading Rainbow Valley by L. M. Montgomery. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. 
Chapter 1 Home Again It was a clear, apple-green evening in May, and Four Winds Harbor was mirroring back the clouds of the golden west between its softly dark shores. The sea moaned eerily on the sandbar, sorrowful even in the spring, but a sly, jovial wind came piping down the Red Harbor Road along which Miss Cornelia's comfortable, matronly figure was making its way towards the village of Glen St. Mary. Miss Cornelia was rightfully Mrs. Marshall Elliot, and had been Mrs. Marshall Elliot for thirteen years, but even yet more people referred to her as Miss Cornelia than as Mrs. Elliot. The old name was dear to her old friends, only one of them contemptuously dropped it. Susan Baker, the gray and grim and faithful handmaiden of the Blythe family at Ingleside, never lost the opportunity of calling her Mrs. Marshall Elliot with the most killing and pointed emphasis, as to say, you wanted to be Mrs. and Mrs. you shall be with a vengeance, as far as I'm concerned. Miss Cornelia was going up to Ingleside to see Dr. and Mrs. Blythe, who were just home from Europe. They had been away for three months, having left in February to attend a famous medical congress in London, and certain things which Miss Cornelia was anxious to discuss had taken place in the Glen during their absence. For one thing, there was a new family in the manse, and such a family. Miss Cornelia shook her head over them several times as she walked briskly along. Susan Baker and the Anne Shirley of other days saw her coming as they sat on the big veranda at Ingleside, enjoying the charm of the cat's light, the sweetness of sleepy robins whistling among the twilight maples, and the dance of a gusty group of daffodils blowing against the old, mellow, red brick wall of the lawn. Anne was sitting on the steps, her hands clasped over her knee, looking in the kind dusk as girlish as a mother of many has any right to be. And the beautiful gray-green eyes gazing down the harbor road were as full of unquenchable sparkle and dream as ever. Behind her, in the hammock, Rilla Blythe was curled up, a fat, roly-poly little creature of six years, the youngest of the Ingleside children. She had red hair and hazel eyes that were now buttoned up after the funny, wrinkled fashion in which Rilla always went to sleep. Shirley, the little brown boy, as he was known in the family, who's who, was asleep in Susan's arms. He was brown-haired, brown-eyed, and brown-skinned, with very rosy cheeks, and he was Susan's special love. After his birth, Anne had been very ill for a long time, and Susan mothered the baby with a passionate tenderness which none of the other children, dear as they were to her, had ever called out. Dr. Blythe had said that but for her, he would have never lived. 
I gave him life just as much as you did, Mrs. Doctor, dear, Susan was wont to say. He is just as much my baby as he is yours. And indeed, it was always to Susan that Shirley ran to be kissed for bumps and rocked to sleep and protected from well-deserved spankings. Susan had conscientiously spanked all the other Blythe children when she thought they needed it for their soul's good, but she would not spank Shirley nor allow his mother to do it. Once Dr. Blythe had spanked him, then Susan had been stormily indignant. That man would spank an angel, Mrs. Dr. dear. That he would, she had declared bitterly and she would not make the poor doctor a pie for weeks. She had taken Shirley with her to her brother's home during his parents' absence, while all the other children had gone to Avonlea, and she had three blessed months of him all to herself. Nevertheless, Susan was very glad to find herself back at Ingleside, with all her darlings around her again. Ingleside was her world, and in it she reigned supreme. Even Anne seldom questioned her decisions, much to the disgust of Mrs. Rachel Lind of Green Gables, who gloomily told Anne, whenever she visited Four Winds, that she was letting Susan get to be entirely too much of a boss and would live to ruin. Here is Cornelia Bryant coming up the harbor road, Mrs. Dr. Dear, said Susan. She'll be coming up to unload three months' gossip on us. I hope so, said Anne, hugging her knees. I'm starving for Glen St. Mary gossip, Susan. I hope Miss Cornelia can tell me everything that has happened while we've been away. Everything. Who has got born, or married, or drunk who has died or gone away or calm or fought or lost a cow or found a bow. It's so delightful to come home again with all the dear Glen folks and I want to know all about them. Why, I remember wondering as I walked through Westminster Abbey which of her two special beaux Millicent Drew would finally marry. Do you know, Susan, I have a dreadful suspicion that I love gossip. Well, of course, Mrs. Dr. dear, admitted Susan. Every proper woman likes to hear the news. I am rather interested in Millicent Drew's case myself. I never had a beau, much less two, and I do not mind now, for being an old maid does not hurt when you get used to it. Millicent's hair always looks to me as if she swept it up with a broom, but the men do not seem to mind that. They see only her pretty, piquant, mocking little face, Susan. That may very well be, Mrs. Doctor, dear. The good book says that favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but I should not have minded finding that out for myself if it had been so ordained. I have no doubt we will be beautiful when we are angels, but what good will it do us then? 
Speaking of gossip, however, they do say that poor Mrs. Harrison Miller over harbor tried to hurt herself last week. Oh, Susan. Calm yourself, Mrs. Doctor, dear. She did not succeed, but I really do not blame her for trying, for her husband is a terrible man. But she was very foolish to think of hurting herself and leaving the way clear for him to marry some other woman. If I had been in her shoes, Mrs. Dr. Dear, I would have gone to work to worry him so that he would try to hurt himself instead of me. Not that I hold with people hurting themselves under any circumstances, Mrs. Dr. Dear. What is the matter with Harrison Miller anyway, said Anne impatiently. He is always driving someone to extremes. Well, some people call it religion, and some call it cussedness. Beg your pardon, Mrs. Dr. Dear, for using such a word. It seems they cannot make out which it is in Harrison's case. There are days where he growls at everybody because he thinks he is foreordained to eternal punishment. And then there are days when he does not care and goes and gets drunk. My own opinion is that he is not sound in his intellect, for none of that branch of the Millers were. His grandfather went out of his mind. He thought he was surrounded by big black spiders. They crawled over him and floated in the air about him. I hope I shall never go insane, Mrs. Dr. Deer. I do not think I will, because it is not a habit of the bakers. But, if in an all-wise providence should decree it, I hope it will not take the form of big black spiders, for I loathe the animals. As for Mrs. Miller, I do not know whether she really deserves pity or not. There are some who say she just married Harrison despite Richard Taylor, which seems to me a very peculiar reason for getting married. But then, of course, I am no judge of things matrimonial, Mrs. Dr. Dear, and there's Cornelia Bryant at the gate, so I'll put this blessed brown baby on his bed and get to my knitting. Chapter 2. Sheer Gossip Shirley isn't bad, and Jem and Walter and the twins are down in their beloved Rainbow Valley, said Anne. They just came home this afternoon, you know, and they could hardly wait until supper was over before rushing down to the valley. They love it above every spot on earth. Even the maple grove doesn't rival it in their affections. I'm afraid they love it too well, said Susan gloomily. Little Jim said once he would rather go to Rainbow Valley than to heaven when he died, and that was not a proper remark. I suppose they had a great time in Avonlea, said Cornelia. Enormous. Marilla does spoil them terribly. Jim, in particular, can do no wrong in her eyes. Miss Cuthbert must be an old lady now, said Miss Cornelia, getting out her knitting 
so that she could hold her own with Susan. Miss Cornelia held that woman whose hands were employed always had the advantage over the woman whose hands were not. Marilla is 85, said Anne with a laugh. Her hair is snow white. But strange to say, her eyesight is better than it was when she was 60. Well, dearie, I'm real glad you're all back. I've been dreadful lonesome. But we haven't been dull in the Glen, believe me. There hasn't been such an exciting spring in my time, as far as church matters go. We've got settled with a minister at last, and dearie. The Reverend John Knox Meredith, Mrs. Dr. Dear, said Susan, resolved not to let Miss Cornelia tell all the news. Is he nice? asked Anne interestedly. Miss Cornelia sighed, and Susan groaned. Yes, he's nice enough if that were all, said the former. He is very nice, and very learned, and very spiritual. But oh, Anne dearie, he has no common sense. How was it you called him that? Well, there's no doubt he is by far the best preacher we ever had in Glen St. Mary Church, said Miss Cornelia, veering a tack or two. I suppose it is because he is so moony and absent-minded that he never got a town call. His trial sermon was simply wonderful, believe me. Everyone went mad about it, and his looks. He is very comely, Mrs. Dr. Dear, and when all is said and done, I do like to see a well-looking man in the pulpit, broke in Susan, thinking it was time she reasserted herself again. Besides, said Miss Cornelia, we were anxious to get settled, and Mr. Meredith was the first candidate we were all agreed on. Somebody had objection to all the others. There was some talk of calling Mr. Folsom. He was a good preacher, too, but somehow people didn't care for his appearance. He was too dark and sleek. He looked exactly like a great black tomcat. That he did, Mrs. Dr. Dear, said Susan. I never could abide such a man in the pulpit every Sunday. Then Mr. Rogers came, and he was like a chip in porridge. Neither harm nor good, resumed Miss Cornelia. But if he had preached like Peter and Paul, it would have profited him nothing. For that was the day old Caleb Ramsey's sheep strayed into church and gave a loud bah, just as he announced his text. Everybody laughed, and poor Rogers had no chance after that. Some thought we ought to call Mr. Stewart, because he was so well educated. He could read the New Testament in five languages. But I do not think he was any surer than other men. I'm getting to heaven because of that, interjected Susan. Most of us didn't like his delivery, said Miss Cornelia, ignoring Susan. He talked in grunts, so to speak, and Mr. Arnett couldn't preach at all. And he picked about the worst candidating text there was in the Bible. Curse ye, Moroz, 
Whenever he got struck for an idea, he would bang the Bible and shout very bitterly, Curse ye, Morose. Poor Morose got thoroughly cursed that day, whoever he was, Mrs. Dr. Dear, said Susan. The minister who is candidating can't be too careful in what text he chooses, said Miss Cornelia solemnly. I believe Mr. Pearson would have got the call if he had picked a different text. But when he announced, I will lift my eyes to the hills, he was done for. Everyone grinned, for everyone knew that those two hill girls from the harbor head had been setting their caps for every single minister who came to the Glen for the last 15 years. And Mr. Newman had too large a family. He stayed with my brother-in-law, James Clow, said Susan. How many children have you got? I asked him. Nine boys and a sister for each of them, he said. Eighteen, said I. Dear me, what a family. And then he laughed and laughed. But I do not know why, Mrs. Dr. Dear, and I am certain that eighteen children would be too many for any man's. He had only ten children, Susan, explained Miss Cornelia, with contemptuous patience. And ten good children would not be much worse for the manse and congregation than the four who are there now. Though I wouldn't say, Anne dearie, that they are so bad either. I like them. Everybody likes them. It's impossible to help liking them. They would be real nice little souls if there was anyone to look after their manners and teach them what is right and proper. For instance, at school the teacher says they are model children, but at home they simply run wild. What about Mrs. Meredith? asked Dan. There's no Mrs. Meredith. That is the trouble. Mr. Meredith is a widower. His wife died four years ago. If we had known that, I don't suppose we would have called him, for the widower is even worse in a congregation than a single man. But he has heard to speak of his children, and we all suppose there was a mother too. And when they came, there was nobody but old Aunt Martha, as they call her. She's a cousin of Mr. Meredith's mother, I believe and he took her in to save her from the poorhouse. She is 75 years old, half blind, and very deaf and very cranky. And a very poor cook, Mrs. Dr. Dear. The worst possible manager for a man, said Miss Cornelia bitterly. Mr. Meredith won't get any other housekeeper because he says it would hurt Aunt Martha's feelings. And dearie, believe me, the state of that manse is something terrible. Everything is thick with dust, and nothing is ever in its place. And we had painted and papered it all so nice before they came. There are four children, you say, asked Anne, beginning to mother them already in her heart. Yes, they run up just like the steps of a stair. Gerald's the oldest, 
He's 12 and they call him Jerry. He's a clever boy. Faith is 11. She is a regular tomboy, but pretty as a picture, I must say. She looks like an angel, but she is a holy terror for mischief, Mrs. Dr. dear, said Susan solemnly. I was at the manse one night last week, and Mrs. James Millicent was there, too. She had brought them up a dozen eggs and a little pail of milk. A very little pail, Mrs. Dr. dear. Faith took them and whisked down the cellar with them. Near the bottom of the stairs, she caught her toe and fell the rest of the way, milk and eggs and all. You can imagine the result, Mrs. Dr. dear, but that child came up laughing. I don't know whether I'm myself or a custard pie, she said, and Mrs. James Millicent was very angry. She said she would never take another thing to the manse if it was to be wasted and destroyed in that fashion. Maria Millicent never hurt herself taking things to the manse, sniffed Miss Cornelia. She just took them that night as an excuse for curiosity. But poor Faith is always getting into scrapes. She is so heedless and impulsive. Just like me, I'm going to like your faith, said Anne decidedly. She is full of spunk, and I do like spunk, Mrs. Dr. Dear, admitted Susan. There's something taking about her, conceded Miss Cornelia. You never see her, but she's laughing, and somehow it always makes you want to laugh, too. She can't even keep a straight face in church. Una is ten. She's a sweet little thing. Not pretty, but sweet. And Thomas Carlyle is nine. They call him Carl. And he has a regular mania for collecting toads and bugs and frogs and bringing them into the house. I suppose he was responsible for the dead rat that was lying on the chair in the parlor the afternoon Mrs. Grant called. It gave her a turn, said Susan. And I do not wonder, for man's parlors are no places for dead rats. To be sure, it may have been the cat who left it there. He is as full of the old Nick as he can be stuck, Mrs. Dr. Dear. A man's cat should at least look respectable, in my opinion, whatever he really is. But I never saw such a rakish-looking beast and he walks along the ridge pole of the manse almost every evening at sunset, Mrs. Dr. Dear, and waves his tail, and that is not becoming. The worst of it is, they are never decently dressed, sighed Miss Cornelia, and since the snow went, they go to school barefooted. Now, you know, Anne Derry, that isn't the right thing for manse children especially when the Methodist minister's little girl wears such nice button boots. And I do wish they wouldn't play in the old Methodist graveyard. It's very tempting when it's right beside the manse, said Anne. I've always thought graveyards must be delightful places to play in. 
Oh no, you did not, Mrs. Doctor, dear, said loyal Susan, determined to protect Anne from herself. You have too much good sense and decorum. Why do they ever build that manse beside the graveyard in the first place, asked Anne. Their lawn is so small, there's no place for them to play except in the graveyard. It was a mistake, admitted Miss Cornelia, but they got the lot cheap, and no other man's children ever thought of playing there. Mr. Meredith shouldn't allow it, but he always got his nose buried in a book when he is home. He reads and reads, or walks about in his study in a daydream. So far he hasn't gotten to be in the church on Sundays, but twice he has forgotten about the prayer meeting, and one of the elders had to go over to the manse and remind him. And he forgot about Fanny Cooper's wedding. They rang him up on the phone, and then he rushed right over, just as he was, carpet slippers and all. One wouldn't mind if the Methodists didn't laugh so about it. But there's one comfort. They can't criticize his sermons. He wakes up when he's in the pulpit, believe me. And the Methodist minister can't preach at all, so they tell me. I've never heard him, thank goodness. Miss Cornelia's scorn of men had abated somewhat since her marriage but her scorn of Methodists remained untinged of charity. Susan smiled slyly. They do say, Mrs. Marshall Elliott, that the Methodists and Presbyterians are talking of uniting, she said. Well, all I hope is that I'll be under the sod if that ever comes to pass, retorted Miss Cornelia. I shall never have a truck or trade with a Methodist. And Mr. Meredith will find that he'd better steer clear of them, too. He's entirely too sociable with them, believe me. Why, he went to the Jacob Drew Silver Wedding Supper and got into a nice scrape as a result. What was it? Mrs. Drew asked him to carve the roast goose, for Jacob Drew never did or could carve. Well, Mr. Meredith tackled it, and the process he knocked it clean off the platter into Mrs. Reese's lap, who was sitting next to him. He just said dreamily, Mrs. Reese, will you kindly return me that goose? Mrs. Reese returned it, as meek as Moses, but she must have been furious, for she had on her new silk dress. The worst of it is, she was a Methodist, but I think that is better than if she was a Presbyterian, interjected Susan. If she had been a Presbyterian, she would most likely have left the church, and we cannot afford to lose our members. And Mrs. Reese is not liked in her own church, because she gives herself such great airs, so that the Methodists would be rather pleased that Mr. Meredith spoiled her dress. The point is, he made himself ridiculous, and I, for one, do not like to see my minister made ridiculous in the eyes of Methodists, said Miss Cornelia stiffly. If he had had a wife, it would not have happened. I do not see if he had a dozen wives, 
how they could have prevented Mrs. Drew from using up her tough old gander for the first wedding feast, said Susan stubbornly. They say that was her husband's doing, said Miss Cornelia. Jacob Drew is a conceited, stingy, domineering creature. And they do say he and his wife detest each other, which does not seem to me the proper way for married folks to get along. But then, of course, I've had no experience along that line, said Susan, tossing her head. And I am not the one to blame everything on men. Mrs. Drew is mean enough herself. Mrs. Drew is mean enough herself. They say that the only thing she was ever known to give away was a crock of butter made out of cream a rat had fell into. She contributed it to a church social. Nobody found out about the rat until afterwards. Fortunately, all the people of the Merediths have offended so far are Methodists, said Miss Cornelia that Jerry went to the Methodist prayer meeting one night, about a fortnight ago, and sat beside old William Marsh, who got up as usual and testified with fearful groans. Do you feel better now? whispered Jerry when William sat down. Poor Jerry meant to be sympathetic, but Mr. Marsh thought he was impertinent and is furious at him. Of course, Jerry had no business to be in a Methodist prayer meeting at all. But they go where they like. I hope they will not offend Mrs. Alec Davis of the Harborhead, said Susan. She's a very touchy woman, I understand. But she is very well off and pays the most of anyone to the salary. I've heard that she says the Merediths are the worst brought up children she ever saw. Every word you say convinces me more and more that the Merediths are fussy, said Mr. Sand decidedly. When all is said and done, they are, admitted Miss Cornelia, and that balances everything. Anyway, we've got them now, and we must do the best we can by them and stuck up for them to the Methodists. Well, I suppose I must be getting to the harbor. Marshall will soon be home. He went over harbor today, and wanting is super manlike. I'm sorry I haven't seen the other children. And where's the doctor? Up at the harbor head. We've only been home three days, and in that time he has spent three hours in his own bed and eaten two meals in his own house. Well, everybody who has been sick for the last six weeks have been waiting on him to come home and I don't blame them. When that over-harbor doctor married the undertaker's daughter at Lowbridge, people felt suspicious of him. It didn't look well. You and the doctor must come down soon and tell us all about your trip. I suppose you've had a splendid time. We had, agreed Anne. It was the fulfillment of years of dreams. The old world is very lovely and very wonderful, but we've come back very well satisfied with our own land. Canada is the finest country in the world, Miss Cornelia. Nobody ever doubted that, said Miss Cornelia complacently. 
and old PEI is the loveliest province in it, and Four Winds the loveliest spot in PEI, laughed Anne, looking adoringly out over the sunset splendor of Glen and Harbor and Gulf. She waved her hand at him. I saw nothing more beautiful than that in Europe, Miss Cornelia. Must you go? The children will be sorry to have missed you. They must come and see me soon. Tell them the donut jar is always full. Oh, at supper they were planning a descent on you. They'll go soon, but they must settle down to school again now. And the twins are going to take music lessons. Not from the Methodist minister's wife, I hope, said Miss Cornelia anxiously. No, from Rosemary West. I was up late last evening to arrange it with her. What a pretty girl she is. Rosemary holds her own well. She isn't as young as she once was. I thought her very charming. I never had any real acquaintance with her, you know. The house is so out of the way, and I've seldom ever seen her except at church. People always have liked Rosemary West, though they don't understand her, said Miss Cornelia, quite unconscious of the high tribute she was paying to Rosemary's charm. Ellen has always kept her down, so to speak. She has tyrannized over her, and yet she has always indulged her in a good many ways. Rosemary was engaged once, you know, to young Martin Crawford. His ship was wrecked in the Magdalena, and all the crew were drowned. Rosemary was just a child, only seventeen, but she was never the same afterwards. She and Ellen have stayed very close at home since their mother's death. They don't often get to their own church at Lowbridge, and I understand Ellen doesn't approve of going too often to a Presbyterian church. To the Methodist, she never goes. I'll say that much for her. That family of West have always been strong Episcopalians. Rosemary and Ellen are pretty well off. Rosemary doesn't really need to give music lessons. She does it because she likes to. They are distantly related to Leslie, you know. Are the Fords coming to the harbor this summer? No. They are going on a trip to Japan and will probably be away for a year. Owen's new novel is to have a Japanese setting. This will be the first summer that the dear old house of dreams will be empty since we left it. I should think Owen Ford might find enough to write about in Canada without dragging his wife and children to Japan, grumbled Miss Cornelia. The life book was the best book he's ever written, and he got the material for that right here in the Four Winds. Captain Jim gave him the most of that, you know, and he collected it all over the world. But Owen's books are all delightful, I think. Oh, they're well enough as far as they go. I make it a point to read everyone he writes, though I've always held, and dearie, that writing novels is a sinful waste of time. Does he want Kenneth and Persis to be converted into pagans? 
with which unanswerable conundrum Miss Cornelia took her departure. Susan proceeded to put Rilla in bed, and Anne sat on the veranda steps under the early stars and dreamed her incorrigible dreams and learned all over again for the hundredth happy time what a moonrise splendor and sheen could be seen on Four Winds Harbor. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.